You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Y'all, y'all here, right? And sometimes choosing praise because of circumstances becomes a difficult thing for us to, um, to deal with. And, and the, this morning, we're, we're talking about the same group of people that we've talked about before when Peter writes his letter to the exiles. Uh, you know, they, they're in a situation where choosing praise would be difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, have you ever been forced out of living a place because of the circumstances around it? And, and having to move to a new place and still in the midst of that going, I don't want to be here and yet to choose praise. What does that look like? Uh, last week, we talked about a, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it providing us for several things. Uh, the first one was an eternal inheritance. Uh, it's not... It's not something that goes away. It's an imperishable benefit. We talked about an extraordinary protection that comes through God in that, that we are secure. When we give our life to Christ, that, that God, by His Holy Spirit, secures us and takes care of us. In fact, when we give our life to Christ, nobody can take that life away from us. It is secure. And you've heard some people say, you can lose your salvation. Uh, You didn't gain your salvation by something you did. I'm not exactly sure how you lose it if God preserves it. God preserves our salvation. So it's extraordinary protection for us. And lastly, we have an expanding faith. And, And trusting Christ as we expand our faith creates this muscle memory. And remember, we talked about that. We talked about sharing toothbrushes. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've not done that again this week. Just in case you were wondering, it's all, it's all been good. Um, I want to read a quote to you from Charles Spurgeon, and this is what it says. There are some people who need to wear a label around their necks to show that they are Christians at all. Or else we might mistake them for sinners. Their actions are so like those of the ungodly. And we could fuss against Spurgeon at this point and say, you know, I'm not sure if I agree with that. But, but is it not true that, that we seek to identify with, with certain things by, by certain outward appearances? We may wear a cross that says we belong to Christ, or we may wear um, a t-shirt that says this is the group that we belong to. We do that often. And, and yet, those aren't the real measures of who we are in Christ, are they? Because you can put a t-shirt on anybody, and it could say one thing, and every action around in that person's life can be something different. Um, at some point, I took some clothes when we left Florida and moved to Kentucky. You know, you clean out things when you move, and you start to arrange things when you get to a new place. And I had, a, I had a group of t-shirts that I just wanted to get rid of. When you're in student ministry, and Jeremiah, you know this, when you're in student ministry, you have 9 million t-shirts that your wife constantly tells you you need to get rid of some, right? And so I have, 
I have stacks of T-shirts at my house. Um, I wore one not too long ago. It, it was dated 1999. Hey, y'all will be fussy. It was a good T-shirt. Um, but, but uh, you know, stacks of T-shirts. And so I did what I was supposed to do. I took a group of those T-shirts and packed them up, took them down to the local thrift place, and turned around about three weeks later, we had hired somebody on our church staff and he was allowed to wear anything because he was going to get messy. And I looked over and I went, that's my t-shirt. <laughs> Dude, where'd you get that? And he goes, oh, down to, to Goodwill. And, and, and I bought it and I went, oh, you owe me money. Um, <laughs> but it was, a, it was, and the only reason I recognized it, because it wasn't a generic thing, it was something that we specifically designed for a trip. And he came back wearing it. And I thought, okay, now it really scares me to take shirts that I have that are identified a certain way and take them to a place like that because I don't know where that shirt's going to end up. And so it makes me a little leery about taking this shirt that says, I'm a Christian, and then you run across it in some place and you're like, I wish you hadn't worn that shirt there. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And so... In, in this whole idea of belonging to Christ and, and how we identify with Christ, there are certain things that we do to prepare. We're, we're now entering the spring training season for baseball, and it's, it's all about preparation. When you start spring training, you go back to basic things. You go back to, you know, how do you catch? How do you catch a ground ball? How do you bat? You know, what's your stance? All the kind of basic things. But we prepare for a lot of different things in life, don't we? I mean, spring training is just an indication of the season, but we prepare for a lot of things. Some of you will do yard work and preparing for a nice lawn this summer. Some of you will gather ingredients for a family meal, whether it's for this afternoon or sometime later this week, as you'll pull all those ingredients in preparation for providing this particular meal. Some of you will paint a room for the arrival of a new child or study prior to an exam, just so you can make a grade. And it's all preparation. And we do all those kind of things all the time. We're constantly getting ready for the next thing. And Peter, when he's writing to this, to the exiled church that has moved into Asia Minor, the first thing he does is he's going to tell them about preparing. And I'm thinking to myself as I read that, as they've arrived in this new spot, don't, don't you know they were like, can't we just settle? Can't we just get here and relax? Because if I'm them, and, I, and Deb and I have moved several times in the course of ministry and life, and when you get someplace, you just want to put things away and be done for a while and not have to do any more of that preparation. But yet, Peter, when he writes to this church, first thing he does after talking about their relationship in Christ and their eternal inheritance is he begins to tell them to prepare. And the truth is, when we accept Christ, we are not a finished product. And God still wants to do something with us. So wouldn't it be appropriate for, for God to say through Peter, hey, you need to be in preparation for something. Because there's something else down the line. In fact, if the goal 
if the goal that God had in mind was just your salvation, then as soon as you receive Christ as your Savior, you would be where? Heaven. That's the goal. Why stop? Or why, why go any further than that if the goal has been reached? In fact, most, a lot of us, I would imagine that we felt the very most free in our relationship with Christ right after we accepted Christ. You pray, maybe you prayed a prayer and said, I want to receive Jesus into my life as my Savior and Lord. I want Him to come in. He's securing me. The blood has been applied to my life and I receive forgiveness and no longer am I under the penalty of my sin. And so the burden of that sin was lifted off of you. And so at that point, you're going, man, I am feeling free, free, which kind of like a commercial, right? So every time you see that commercial now, the free, 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 think about salvation. It is free in some respects because it costs God. And, and when we say salvation is free, we may have felt the freest at that point in our life than any other place, any other time in our life. And, and the reason I say that God's not done is because he's left us here on the backside of salvation. And you know as well as I do that once you accept Christ, that the temptations and the failures do not cease. We still deal with them, don't we? We still are going to have those times where we know for a fact that we are not pleasing God. And maybe we've made a conscious choice on the front end of doing something. But if nothing else, if you could look back and say, I know I made a choice to do this and I know it doesn't please God. And you look back and you have to say, and you try and apply that 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us give us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we start applying that and saying, I want to feel the same freedom I did when I first accepted Christ. I really believe that that may be that same feeling that David had in his mind when he wrote Psalm 51, God returned to me the joy of my salvation. And yet God has left us here and said, I'm not done doing something in your life. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And this is what Paul writes. He writes, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is not God, God satisfied with where I was when I first accepted Christ? Is that a valid question to ask? Because we're still here, right? So what does God want to do with us? And what it tells me is that, yes, God wants you to have a relationship with Him in salvation, but God is not done using you to affect the world around you for the cause of Christ and for His glory. And so I, I think there are people that accept Christ and think, I've got my fire insurance, I'm done. And it's all good. But that's not what God says. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And please hear this. It's not working for your salvation. You don't work for your salvation. The way it writes, here, it writes this is it's actually the, the idea of working within your salvation. 
for God to be glorified in your life. And so Peter starts with this assertion of your eternal inheritance through life in that your life ought to be different when you come to Christ and when you are growing in Christ. If it doesn't look any different, and the only difference in your life has been you've changed the t-shirt that you wear, then the question would be, do you have a relationship with Christ? Maybe Spurgeon had it right. Would you stand as we read part of 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13? Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass and grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that is true. God, we thank you for what we have in Christ and that you've secured us as your people to follow you. And that, Father, you don't leave us alone when we accept Christ, but you want to grow us and mature us in our relationship to you and in our relations to others. So, Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that you would reveal to us, us, that you would expose us, allow us to look in the mirror and see ourselves for who we are and who we are in Christ. And then, Father, that action step that we need to take next as your word is placed on top of us and, and seeks to, to mold us into the image of Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you you would have your way this morning with us and that we would be wide open to your leadership. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So look what Peter writes at the very beginning of this, in this section. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of this, there's the word therefore. And you know why therefore is because therefore everything after this relates to something that was behind it. And so when we look at it, we say, therefore, well, what's therefore? And it's because God has given us an eternal inheritance in Christ. And what Peter's writing to is a group of people that have accepted Christ as their Savior. They've been exiled because of their faith in Christ and are living in, uh, among a group of people that may or may not know Christ as their Savior. And so they're a lot like you and I are. And because of their salvation through Christ, Peter's giving them some things that they need to do. First thing he says in this is to be prepared for action. Number one is be prepared for action. Look, it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. We can just stop right there. What does the word prepare mean? And some of your versions may say to gird up. That's, that's what the Greek word means, and it's, it's that idea of if you are traveling or going anywhere, if you're going into battle or making a long journey, you had a, a robe that you needed to tie up and pull up so that you wouldn't trip on it and it would not get in the way of what you needed to do. I, th- I think it's that idea, if, you, if you've been to a wedding, you know that the dress on the bride can get in the way, Right? And it's, it's always the fear of the bride walking down the aisle. If it's a long dress, I sure hope I don't trip on this. And it's, it's scary. You get up to the front and then you got to walk the steps. And there's, there's this fear during rehearsal that that could take place. Nobody wants to trip and fall. And you've seen the funny videos on, you, uh, on YouTube or on Facebook where you see brides kind of like take the nosedive and you're like, oh, man. I'm glad it wasn't me, or I'm glad it's not going to be me, right? And so this whole idea of girding up is is bringing your garments into line so that you can journey with ease, or you can go into battle without an encumbrance. It's it's what Hebrews 12.1 says, only it's a little different encumbrance here, Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded so great, with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lie, lay aside every weight or encumbrance and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And when Peter writes, he says, Gird yourself, be prepared, get ready for. Different things to get ready for and different things that we can do. The writer of Hebrews puts it in terms of our sin or something that bogs us down in our relationship with Christ. Something that gets in the way of that relationship. And all of us can be in that place where there are things that kind of, kind of slide in or wedge in between us and God. For some, of, for some of us in the room, it could be an addiction. For some of us, it's a relationship or a job or the the chase after money, a whole bunch of different things could be that wedge. 
And, and if Peter is true in what he says, be prepared for action, there's a degree at which we need to identify the things that wedge in there that get in the way of our relationship with God because God is not calling us to the action of just getting rid of things. God is calling us to the action of doing something for the kingdom of God. He's not calling the exiles to rest. He's calling them for action. And so they may have moved into a place, but they're not to move in and settle. They're the move in and be prepared for action. The goal is not a physical destination, but rather a destination of the mind. It's a mental thing. When we are ready for action, when we go into the world, when we are prepared in our mind to face the the things that we're going to face as we walk into different situations then it's easier to deal with the circumstances that come with that. Think about you being in exile. What would it look like to go to the market in Peter's day? And who would you face? Well, if I've got in my mind, this is what God wants me to do when I walk into that, it's much better than being surprised by the circumstances around me. Luke 12, 35 is in the context of the bride and the bridegroom. Verse 35 says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. It's the idea of don't be lazy. Don't let laziness be a danger to you. And we we talk about being at rest in Christ, and that is true. Is that we can trust Christ and rest on Him. But it's not an excuse to be lazy. It's not an excuse not to be ready. And so what what is said in Luke, it's this idea of being ready for the bridegroom. And if, if we are ready for Christ's return, then we're in a good place. We're prepared. Ephesians 6.14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, or in the way the New American Standard reads, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. So, so not only prepare your mind for action, but be, be ready with the truth of God's Word when you walk into these situations. And so what is it, what is going on in your mind that is a constant battle? Maybe it's the way that you think about God. How do you think about God? How do you view God? If we were to go around the room, what would you say God is to you? Some of of us would say that He is the lover of my soul. And yet some of us in this room consider God as the punisher for everything that I do wrong. It really depends on our view of God, doesn't it? And so we could have that idea, that battle that goes on in our mind. Who is God? Or maybe it's about what we consider with regards to others. What do others think about me? And how does that affect my life with God? Or maybe it's when we've been wronged or, or we do wrong, what do we think about? See, our minds can take us down a whole lot of different roads that would not necessarily lead us to follow God the way we need to follow God. 
Let me give you a for instance. If I am insecure in who I am, just as a person, what are the chances of me being bold in my witness to share Christ with somebody that doesn't know him? I'm probably going to shy away from that. I may feel like I don't have the adequate knowledge or, or the, just the, the willingness to step into that situation because I'm insecure in myself. And yet some people are so secure in here, they'll walk up and they'll witness to a flagpole. You know, it, it doesn't really matter. But what we think about ourselves and what we think about in our mind makes a difference. In fact, John Piper wrote a book and it was all about thinking. He said Christians ought not, and this is a, a big time summary of the book, ought not to put their minds in neutral. He says, you as a Christian ought to think. You ought to be prepared in your mind. Preparing your mind for action says that we are ready to share with others the story of the hope that is in Christ. Second thing is to keep perspective on life. It says to, for us to be sober-minded or to keep sober in spirit if you go back and look at the Greek, you would say that just means to not be drunk. But in the New Testament, it's really tied to perspective. It's less tied to, to, being, to drinking or, or being drunk. It's the idea that our thoughts are not impaired or, or affected in a way that is not godly. And so what he says is, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded or have the right perspective. Keep the perspective on life that you ought to have according to God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 and 6 says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. How do you feel when you get really tired? You ever been driving pretty tired and you kind of get that glassy-eyed feeling like things start to get a little blurry and you feel just kind of out of it and you, you kind of rub your eyes and want to clear that up? Well, that's, that's one of the ideas here with regards to the way we view life around us. It's to be awake. See, perspective clarifies understanding. And may, maybe it's the, this idea, how, how many of you know somebody that is overly dramatic? Some of you are going, I'm not raising my hand because the person's sitting next to me and for sure they'll figure that out. You know, I've been around folks that are overly dramatic. There are times when I'm dramatic. Uh, I'll say something to Deb and she's like, you're just, you're just making a big deal out of hardly anything. I'm like, Okay. Um, and we just, we just move on. But it's, it's all about perspective, right? Somebody who's over, overly dramatic is going to make this big production of sharing something when it's really not a big production at all. And so you can be glassy-eyed and just kind of out of it. You can be overdramatic. And what Peter is writing, he said, you people in exile, prepare your mind for action, but also keep perspective. Don't lose the right perspective in being exiled in this place because God is at work in you. 
He's telling them to be mindfully ready and keep things on an even view. Not dazed or dramatic, but have an aptitude for what is happening around you. Lastly, he says, look past the present. Fix your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting what Peter writes here because Peter is referencing two different things. Um, We know that when Jesus comes back, we're talking about an outcome. Uh, a final destination, if you will. And for those that are in exile, they would really hope to be settled at this point. And so a final outcome is really good. But Peter is also referencing a process. And he's saying, don't, don't just look at the present, but understand who God is in the bigger picture, in the longer view of this. God has brought you here on purpose. And he, he is at work in you. And so because of the salvation through Christ that, that makes your perspective different, that helps you to see things in a way that is prepared for action, there are some things that Peter goes into in this next section of Scripture that speaks to us. And I want to be very clear on this. Although there is a behavioral piece to this section of Scripture, please understand Peter is not taking a legalistic point of view. Hear that. Because there is a vast difference between those that follow Christ and want to obey Christ and those that are trying to obey Christ and having a legalistic view in that if I do this, God will accept me more or love me better or bless me. There is a difference. God calls us to obedience in Christ without the legalistic. And that's sometimes a hard thing to wrap our brains and our minds and, our, and just our lives around. Because we say, we want to please God. We want to do this. But if it's, in a, if it's trying to affect God's thoughts toward you and that he will accept you more than he already does, then we've missed the boat. We've missed what God is trying to do. Look what it says, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you, called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. First thing in that In this section is you've been redeemed for obedience. It says as obedient children. What what realm is he putting that in? He's putting that in the context of a family, isn't he? So who is is the father in the, the scheme of life in Christ? God the Father, right? It's, it's the same one that, we, that Jesus taught us to pray to in, in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's that same Father. And it's something that Jewish believers would understand very well. It's this idea of a family reference. It started back in the giving of the law, but it goes beyond that. It's not just an adherence to the law. In fact, Jesus had a conversation with the Pharisees in John chapter 6. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced 
that he would see my day. And, and what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 8 is this idea that he existed before Abraham did. And it messed with the Pharisees. So you've been redeemed to obedience because you are part of the family of God. It is relational holiness. Peter used the term children reminding them of the paternal relationship to God as their father, Abba Father. It reminds them they ought to imitate God. I remember when I was growing up, and, and a lot of us can be in this spot where you have a parent, and the thing you do is you go put on your parents' shoes. You remember doing that? Some of you are going, yeah, I remember that. Some of you, maybe not so much. But you put on the shoes, and, and you kind of scoot through the house. You don't really walk through the house, because if you lifted up your foot, the shoe would fall right off. But you scoot through the house. But you're fitting into the shoes of the one who is your parent. And it may be a mom or a dad, but you're trying to, to fit in, and it's, it's too big. Yet you're trying to act like them. It's not, we don't gain a confidence from filling the shoe, but rather a confidence because of the one who owns the shoe. And we're talking about obedience to Christ. It's not because we fit in in all our ways as obedient children. It's because we know the one who owns the shoe and who calls us to be his child. Second thing, is you show evidence of obedience. In 1 Peter 1, 17-21, it's a leaving of something that is perishable and grabbing hold of something that is imperishable because, because of Christ. It's your life manifesting itself in evidence of being a believer in Him. It says to conduct ourselves in the fear of God. And if you look at it, it says fear in the Greek. It's a, even a little bit beyond respect. It, it really means to have terror. Healthy terror in terms of consequence. That same dad whose shoes that I put on as a child and walked around the house and kind of scooted through the house is the same dad I was very fearful of. Not because I, I thought he would ever disown me or get rid of me as a, as a kid. Now, I may have gotten that threat, like I made you, I can make another one just like you. May have gotten that. I knew he wasn't going to follow through with that. I, I knew he loved me too much for that. But he was a dad that, that loved me, and I needed to have respect or a healthy terror of what he might do if I was disobedient. And there were times where I was. The evidence that Peter's talking about here is evidence that comes from the standpoint of what God has done in our life. And he says, essentially, don't cheapen God's grace. He says it was a it was a salvation that was not bought with silver or gold, but was bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so our obedience, 
the evidence of our obedience comes because we value what God did for us, not because we're trying to earn God's favor. One commentator put it in terms like this. He said, Peter leads us to consider how often we exchange earthly things for spiritual blessings. The idea where we cheapen the blood of Christ because we chase after something that we think has more value. We've been redeemed and ransomed. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I want to jump down to verse 22. 1 Peter 1.22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why would Peter put this in the middle of this call to action and being prepared? Why would he throw that in the middle of this this letter to the exiles. How, long, how many times have you ever been on a trip with your family? And did you get along the whole time you were gone? Somebody going, oh. I, I, I remember being in the back of a car on the way to vacation, but I also remember being in the front driving with family on vacation. You know, you know how long is it till we get there? Are we there yet? All those kind of questions. And then, then you get the, he's touching me. or She's touching me. She's bothering me. And the threat that comes from the front of the car is what? I will pull this thing over. When we were traveling with Stephen as a baby, we, he was in the back in the car seat crying like crazy. We finally just decided Deb was going to go sit in the back with him, so she did. That did not settle him down. And then, then she said, well, I'm pulling him out of the car seat. It doesn't really matter. And she pulled him out of the car seat. I'm going to hold him so that he will be quiet. That didn't work. Eventually, she just said, stop the car. And we're on Interstate 85 between Atlanta, headed to New Orleans, and she just said, stop the car. She got out of the car, left Stephen in the back seat. And she started walking down the interstate. And I'm like, woman? You know, well, yeah, I, I didn't know. It's a long walk from, from where we were to New Orleans. So I, I don't really know what she had in mind, except for she needed to get out of the car. There was this, this idea that, that it was just too hard for her to deal with. She got sidetracked. And if we're in, in this idea of loving and, and not being sidetracked, we need to love each other with a, a love. And the exiles were no different. They needed to hear somebody tell them, love the people around you, even if you've traveled with them and they get on your nerves. Now, you and I both know then when we get a group of people together this large in a room, there are people in here that get on your nerves. Now, I'm not admitting that. I don't know why not. If we're family, we get on each other's nerves occasionally. Right? I mean, I'd ought to get on your nerves every once in a while. Yet Peter says to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The evidence 
of obedience to Christ is loving God's people. Bob Goff said this, he said, what's crazy is that Jesus spent his whole life engaging the people most of us spend our whole lives avoiding. He found people who thought were out and said they were in and he didn't vet the guy across on the cross next to him. He said, I'll see you in paradise. Even wilder, Jesus also showed love for the self-righteous people who excluded those he loved. He called them out but also let them know there was always room for more humble people. Then he said to love our neighbors and our enemies. And he didn't just mean the easy ones. He meant everyone. Then Bob Goff asked this question. What kind of person do you find it most difficult to love? Maybe somebody in this room. The context is that they were in a strange place as exiles. They knew each other well. And Peter's calling them to love one another so that the world around, around them sees Christ. The last piece of this is you follow a criteria for obedience. It, what would happen if we made up our own rules? We said being a Christian is about following rules and then we decide to make up the rules. How would that look? Well, all of us would have different things to say about that, wouldn't we? So, well, we need to love one another, okay? But is there something in God's Word that we would take out? And is there something beyond God's Word that we would put in? Peter tells us that we don't have the option on putting aside rules for obedience. When you change the rules, things go into disarray. Well, we witness that in the news all the time, maybe just this week. Change the rule, it causes change the rules, it causes questions. 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25 talks about the importance of God's Word. And it's really the truth in God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, the Bible is a living and enduring springboard for an action-based Christianity. It's an inspired Word that is profitable for reproof and correction. And so what should we gain from what Peter tells the exiles? We should know that he's calling them for their mind to be engaged and to be action-oriented. For them to be clear in their thinking. And to not just look way at the end and know that their salvation is in Christ, but understand their salvation applies now while they are in the process of being matured. And then he tells them to show evidence of their obedience in Christ. To love one another based on the truth of God's word. And so here, here are the, the six things that I, I think we need to grasp from this. And, and then we're going to have a time of invitation. If you like to spend some time at the altar on any one of these, it would be good. The, the, the first one is action, not rest. Peter calls us to action, not rest. 
And there are some that just want to show up at church on Sunday morning, but you are called to be people of action. And your mind should be prepared for action. Second thing is to keep perspective, not distortion. Have perspective, not distortion. Third thing, futuristic, but not fatalistic. We can look at the world around us and have a fatalistic attitude toward it. Or we can say God is in control. And I'm going to trust that he is not only working for my outcome, but for my process. Third thing, obedience to Christ or in Christ, but it's not behavior to earn Christ. God provides his salvation for us and we don't earn it. Fifth, we are to be difference makers, not have an idle existence. There is so much potential in this room for accomplishing what God wants to do. And it's, it's us that need to surrender to his call in our life. To be difference makers. Isn't that part of our vision statement? To make a difference in the world around you? By connecting with the world around you? To be difference makers. Then lastly, to love with intention, not to be apathetic in relationships. That's action-oriented. It means I can't sit back. And so the question out of 1 Peter and what he calls us to, to being people that reflect him. And understand that when Peter writes this, he's writing to a people that have not only traveled together, so there's this relationship between those folks, but there's a group of people that they've moved into that need to see the love of God among a group of people that have been called out by God. We live in a world that looks at us and they're looking to trip us on what we believe about Scripture. They want to see if Christians are really going to love one another. They want to see if Christians are really going to apply the love of Christ in the world around them. And they can find evidence of the things that they think the church is called to in a lot of different organizations, but the only one that makes an eternal difference is the church of Jesus Christ as we are submitted to God. And so I want to ask you, are you in the place where you're ready to say, God, take control of my life, help me to prepare for action, and help me to not be apathetic as we move forward in this process of you maturing me in Christ? Let's pray. God, there are some weighty words in 1 Peter in this section. Words that call us to obedience out of our love for you and the recognition of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross of Calvary. Father, there are things about us being prepared and not settled. So, Father, I pray as you guide us, as you help us to consider what we're called to, 
that as a church, you would call us to be ready for the things that you have for us. Father, we may not view ourselves as exiles, but we live in a world that's very different from the world inside the walls of of this church. And so, God, I pray that you would prepare us to step outside the walls and that in that you would be glorified. That people would see you because of our love. God, we do praise you and we love you. And Father, may our act of obedience start now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.